at Esha Darren Yunishia. Uh, hello, guys. My name is Darren. Um, I'm coming at you from Akuma Atham Peeposh Territory, also known as Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, guys. My name is Jimena, and I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon. So, talk climate change to me. Since the 1950s, around 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced worldwide. Uh, according to a report from The Guardian, an estimated 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced since the 1950s. That's the equivalent to the weight of more than 800,000 Eiffel Towers, and only 9% of that has been recycled. So let's talk about plastic. So like, it's obviously we know it's found everywhere. Um, and it's a really, really big problem. Uh, my Most of the stuff that I know in my research has really dealt with plastic in the oceans. Um, and I kind of know a little bit about where it comes from. Um, but I want to hear what you have to say about plastic, Jimena. I think that one of like the very... <sighs> I don't know. One of the things that breaks my heart is when I'm working out in the field in like literally a random forest where you would think nobody goes to and I still find plastic. Or when I go to places that are like very remote or like a small beach or like a small island and I still find plastic. Like it's just insane how ridiculous this problem is. And the fact that there is still no legislation and no real like governmental action being done about this massive problem that we have right now yeah and like i feel like a lot of people don't even realize how big of a problem it is because it's so engraved in our society that people just don't they don't understand the consequences of our actions and i know everybody wants to push it onto like corporations like oh yeah they're the ones producing this but it's like yeah but we're also consuming it which is why they're producing it you know and it's like plastic debris is literally found in like the arctic the antarctica like all those uh, plastic gyres or like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is one of those which people would know about. And it's just like ridiculous. Like I was driving on the freeway yesterday and this plastic bag like got onto my window. It got onto my windshield wiper and I was just like driving. And all I kept thinking about was how many plastic bags like this are out there just floating around, hitting cars and they're just like polluting the environment, you know? Yeah, like Katy Perry's song, Do You Ever Feel Like a Plastic Bag? Sorry, that's the first thing I think oh of I mean, anytime I hear about plastic bags. <laughs> no, it's so <laughs> like floating funny. in the wind. But yeah, it's it honestly, it's terrible. And even bringing it closer to home, there's been studies done that there's plastic in our systems. And we like as women, we carry that on to our children. Like this is kind of like a little bit off topic, but like they've done studies on umbilical cords to find toxins in children. And kids nowadays are born with like over 200 different toxins in their bodies because of all the products that we use, including plastic. And so it's just like, yeah, we could think of it in a large scale or we could think of it in a small scale, like close to home. It's just such a big topic and broad topic that there's so many avenues that you can hit. it. Yeah. And like one of the, um, like I said before, my, a lot of my um, knowledge on plastic has to do with like marine debris. Uh, and it's actually, um, I'm not sure if many people know about this, but the dirtiest beach in the world is actually in the kingdom of Hawaii on the big island. Uh, and it's not because it's just like dirty with like people who are polluting it. It's because of all the plastic from the Great Pacific garbage patch is washing up on the shores. 
and the plastic is, you know, affecting uh, marine life like sea turtles, um, stingrays, whales, fish, uh, sea lions, seals, uh, like the Hawaiian monk seal, which is a critically endangered species, is actually affected by it. I've seen pictures of them um, like entangled in like plastic bags. Uh, I've seen sharks get stuck in it. And I, I'm, I know me and you know this, but I'm sure not a lot of people know this. Sharks have, in order for them to breathe, they have to keep swimming. And if they get stuck, they can't breathe, so they die. And I, people are like scared of sharks and all those different things, but sharks are such a critical part of marine ecosystems that like without sharks, the oceans would literally collapse. Yeah. And it's insane how time and time again, the government has continued to not really put a lot of emphasis on things like protecting invasive species and, or, um, sorry, endangered species. And even now the Trump administration just rolled back certain protections for the, endangered species act and nobody is really like paying much attention to it which just goes to show where we are as a society i know and like and it's not even it and i know everybody likes to look at plastics from like an anthropocentric worldview which is like um anthropocentric means like human you view humans as the pinnacle of everything which obviously is wrong i'm an ecocentric type of person but um if you're going to look at it through that point of view uh like Plastics, um, can, they're harmful to food sources as well, like our food sources, because the plastics can release chemicals that can leach into the soils which and other water sources. So the water we ingest can have, be polluted with plastic, which are oil-based. Our foods can be um, polluted by plastics or the oils from the plastics, I should say, um, and like that is already harmful for us in general. Um, and like there's been toxic chemicals that are out of the plastics that have been found in tissues and all of us, which you kind of have just discussed about the umbilical cord things. And so it's affecting literally life on the planet, like everything, like just, you know, plants, animals, humans, like just, well, animal, humans are animals, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's just, it's really depressing. And I don't, I think people need to, really understand how big of a problem this is um because like even i'm not sure if you well i i wasn't born when this happened but i'm sure we've heard about this the rubber duckies that were like lost in the oceans like i think there was like almost thirty thousand that they were lost between hong kong and the u.s and even now those toys still wash up i think they were like in the early 90s when they were released yeah, that was real. What where was that released? Because I remember hearing that story. Was that like New York or the, was it the West Coast? Um, or... I'm not sure. All I know is it was a shipping container that was filled with rubber duckies. Almost thirty thousand of them um, were they fell into the ocean. They were just lost, but they were lost between Hong Kong and the U.S. Oh. But I know there was a, they released another one on the East Coast somewhere because I remember reading that story too. And, but it's like people just think that they can just like release stuff and nothing's going to happen. Like it's the same thing with like balloons, you know, balloons are so like people like to let balloons out and graduations, funerals, like um, religious things. And it's like, yeah, those balloons go up into the air and then they pop and then the plastic ends up on the ground. It doesn't just like go away. Like they don't just float into space and then disappear. Yeah. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, but the way that like they 
um, there's a way that they collect weather using like a weather balloon that they send out weather balloons, I think at one and 12 UTC time from like, like several um, weather stations every day and they're all in rubber balloons <laughs> and so I've like I went to, on a field trip to the national weather station one time and we asked them about this because of the plastic problem and they said that like the research kind of outweighed the the cons of the fact that they're polluting because yeah sure they're polluting a little bit but they're learning all this about the atmosphere and it's it's a gray area because maybe they should look for balloons that are biodegradable but they have not. <laughs> yeah, see, and I think, like, that comes from a very, um, like, a, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, a Euro- Eurocentric type of view, um, because we're, like, again, we're valuing research for human needs over the environment, which, you know, like, the research that they're doing is important. Like, I'm not going to say that it isn't, you know, because that is things that I feel like are important to our society, but... They need to be able, it's like you said, they need to use biodegradable uh, rubber and stuff because it's important for us to be good stewards of this planet because we're the caretakers for it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, it's, it's this whole plastic thing is just crazy to me. I've, I've tried to reduce my plastic intake and I think for the most part I've done a really good job. Um, but it's just there's some t- like I eat a lot of tofu and like tofu comes in plastic. So I'm just like I hate because I eat a block of tofu for breakfast every single morning. And so like I hate I mean, it's bulking season, you know, no. yeah. <laughs> nice. so, like I uh, I hate the amount of plastic that I go through with it. And like I wish that there was another way. And like I know I could probably make tofu myself, but it's like I like I, I'm in school. I work. I like I don't have the time to do it, which is really really sad and so i hope that one day i can do that um i do eventually want to try to go down to like a zero waste household you know i think that's a lot of people's goal um but yeah it just everything's in plastic now and it's really depressing and i wish that there was ways for us to like move away from it like even with toothpaste i hate buying toothpaste in a plastic tube like, yeah. I know that there's probably no, I mean, I know that there's another way that they can do it. It's probably more expensive, so they probably, they won't do it. But it's like, can we, re- I, like, I honestly want to know, can we recycle, like, uh, toothpaste tubes, you know? Because it's like, I, I think I go through, like, three or four a month. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to be just throwing all this away, because that's like, what, four times 12 is 40, two for six, eight, 10, 12. I cannot even do my math right now. But it's a lot. <laughs> That's all I know is it's a lot. And so I think actually I think it's like 56. I think Wait, it's 56. Three, three times 12? Four times 12. Oh, it's 48. 48. Just kidding. My oh. B. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at math. So... No. That's why I'm going to school to be an urban planner, sustainability urban planner with interest in indigenous planning and land use because your boy's not good at math. <laughs> it's funny you say that because my concentration was math. <laughs> oh my God, no. See, so when I wanted to, when I was pre-vet at first, like at, when I was going for, um, well, biology, but pre-vet, I had to do a lot of math and I wanted to die because I was like, this is so hard. Like I could do it. Like I was good at it because I just had to study, but... I wasn't good at like I could never remember like 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 that I couldn't multiply in my head I couldn't do those type of things and it was so difficult like I used to know how to do long division like nothing and now it's like I can't even remember how to do it because I haven't done it in like a year oh dang 
Yeah. But I could tell you so many environmental facts and like (laughs) how urbanism is contributing to climate change or how we can uh, be better at environmental planning or like site planning or how to plan cities that don't negatively impact the oceans. Like I could tell you all about that. Yeah, we we all have our strengths. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but for this episode, we're going to be talking with a friend of mine whose name is Tate, and he's going to be telling us about some of the work that he's doing with um, a plastic documentary and like uh, his nonprofit and stuff. So um, let's get uh, Tate on this episode. <laughs> So today's guest is Tate Weaver. He's the founder of Sea Difference, and he is currently working on a documentary on plastic. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the introduction. Um, so I guess I'll talk a little bit about my nonprofit. It's Sea Difference, spelled S-E-E, and it's an acronym which stands for Social Economic Environmental Difference. So we aim to make a difference in all three of those sectors, um, social, economic, environmental. And the work we've done so far, we're just now expanding into environmental, and we're kind of trying to go full force into it. But what we've done so far, what we would consider a social issue, is um, the immigrant crisis down at the U.S.-Mexican border. So we have been working in collaboration with an organization called Border Angels. Um, They are based down in San Diego as well as in Tijuana, Mexico, and they do a lot of work with immigrants that are coming from more southern parts of Mexico as well as some Central American countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and um, even people from the Caribbean. There's a lot of Haitians, actually, which is very interesting. Um, And they provide temporary refuge, I guess you could say, for these individuals. They house them, they give them food, and um, they try to provide them with sorts of legal consultation as well because a lot of these individuals that are ending up in these shelters, these refuge shelters, are individuals that um, tried to make it up to the border, uh, usually to get into the U.S., and then they couldn't do it. And a lot of these individuals have been on the trek for weeks or months and have, you know, abandoned everything they knew in their previous country. So to go back would just be, you know, out of the question at this point. So a lot of these individuals are trying to figure out how they can you know, legally and safely get into the U.S. and or how they're going to resituate and relocate now in Mexico, which is a particularly large issue for the immigrants that are coming from um, the Caribbean and from some Central American countries. You know, the, the Mexican immigrants, it's a little bit easier for them to go back. But for some of these individuals that are coming from Southern, more Central American countries, it's, it's really hard for them once they've made it to Mexico and they're at that U.S.-Mexican border. If they can't cross, um, it's, it's a major dilemma for them. And we've been seeing a huge influx of this since the change in legislation a couple of years ago. And the shelter is just not able to keep up with those volumes, if you will. It's all crowdsourced. They don't have grants or anything like that. And the the process works a little bit differently in Mexico as well. Um, So it's all crowdsourced. The food is all non-perishable donations from the community in Tijuana, and they drive stuff across the border from San Diego as well. So they're having a really hard time um, housing all these immigrants and feeding them and so on and so forth. So what I want to do, I proposed to the director back in um, July, was to build them a, a vertical farm 
like vertical agriculture type setup or a greenhouse on the roof of the shelter. I think that would be a really cool, easy to implement way to um, bring about like a sustainable food source for these immigrants. And um, they, what they typically have going on right now anyways is if these immigrants are going to be staying in the refuge shelter for more than a couple of days, they have to earn their keep, if, if you will. So they help with... Um, Advertising, they help with you know community outreach to get more donations, things like that. So if these if these refuge if these refugees are staying in this in the shelter for more than a couple of days, they try and help out with the overall operations. So um, if we were to implement this this little greenhouse on the roof, they could also help maintain that. So it'd be a super easy to maintain, super sustainable source of like fresh, healthy. Um, food for these immigrants. So we're trying to do that down in Tijuana, Mexico right now. And that's what we consider to be our social issue, our social focus at the moment. Economic, um, we've been working on developing a community down in Dominican Republic. It's on the northern coast of Dominican Republic, and it's called Bate Baraguana. This community is primarily... It consists primarily of Haitian immigrants who came across the Haitian-Dominican border in search of a better life and a higher economic status. Um, much like a lot, much much like a lot of um, Mexicans across the U.S. The, across the U.S. Mexican border, it's a very similar situation. Haiti and Dominican Republic are starkly contrasted, though they they share the same island and they're just divided by that land border. There's stark contrasts between the two. Um, Dominican Republic is typically referred to as like a flourishing tourist economy, and then Haiti is is just a very down in the dirts third world country. Um, from a lot of perspectives, their economy is is really struggling and um, the natural disasters that hit the Caribbean and hit you know places like Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Haiti is just significantly worse for Haiti considering their infrastructure and it's just harder for them to recover. They have very little support from the governments and um, because of that, a lot of Haitians will come across the border into Dominican Republic in search of work. But there's been kind of a long-stood rivalry between the two countries in the sense that... Um, to take it back a little bit to provide some perspective, um, it's one island in the Caribbean called Hispaniola, and the western three-eighths of the island is occupied by Haiti, and then the eastern five-eighths is Dominican Republic. The portion that is now Dominican Republic was colonized by the Spaniards, and um, the western portion was colonized by France. Now, the French brought over slaves from northern and northwestern Africa, um, and it was going to be a new French colony. And then the slaves revolted, and they freed themselves from French handle, which was very cool, and they became the first um, slave-revolted independent country in the world, which is super neat. Um, after that, sometime after that, the... Um, Dominicans did the same and they freed themselves. They, they gained independence from Spain. And then there was just a lot of um, civil warfare between those two newly founded countries, Haiti and Dominican Republic. There was a time in which um, I think Spain reoccupied Dominican Republic and helped the Dominicans to um, colonize, Fran the, colonize Haiti. And for a time they were occupied by Dominican Republic and then they freed themselves again and there was a major revolt. And because of this... Um, it's just this long-stood rivalry between Haitians and Dominicans, and neither of them are very nice to each other. And they have very strict legislation in place to oftentimes keep individuals out of those respective countries. So for Haitians, when they flee to Dominican Republic in search of that better economic standing, oftentimes they lose their Haitian documentation and they're unable to return to Haiti. 
Um, and the Dominican Republic, once they, they started receiving this influx of migrants, they amended their constitution, which was super crazy, to um, deny any kind of a comprehensive path to citizenship for illegal Haitian refugees. So these individuals that are coming across the border in search of work are really taking a chance because they're losing their citizenship in their home country, and they have no comprehensive path to citizenship in Dominican Republic. So they're often referred to as the forgotten people. And for a good 30 or 40 years, their main source of income, their work was working in sugarcane fields. Um, Mid-century times, the export of raw cane sugar was flourishing. It was one of the biggest in the world. And it was um, some country in Southeast Asia, I believe, as well as Cuba and Dominican Republic were the, the biggest exporters of cane sugar. And I believe it was in the 1990s that the UN switched over to high fructose corn syrup as the mass-produced sweetener just because it was cheaper, it was quicker. And when that happened, <clears throat> the demand for cane sugars just dropped significantly. So these Dominicans no longer had a use for the illegal immigrants that were coming from Haiti that were now stuck in their country. So what they did um, in, I believe, about 70% of the sugarcane plantations that they had is they burned them down. Now, these immigrants that were working in these sugarcane plantations, they were situated in little communities built right on the outskirts of the plantations so that they could be housed close to the source of their work. And these communities were called bateyes. And these were little communities that housed primarily the Haitian immigrants as well as some Dominicans, actually, which is very interesting. Um, they would work during the day, oftentimes for like 12, 14 hours a day. They would cut the sugarcane and they would be paid based on the weight, the volume of sugarcane that they cut. And at the end of the day, they would go back to um, the bates. And it was very barrack style. It was bare bones built by the Dominican government just to temporarily house these Haitian immigrants. Um, and they were allowed to stay in the bates after after the demand for the high fructose corn syrup kicked in and the demand for cane sugar dropped, but they no longer had that source of work. And because they were undocumented, um, it was very hard for them to reach out to bigger cities and get more traditional work. And because of that, um, these Bate communities became a very stagnant a very stagnant type of community in which there's very little opportunity and there's very little room for expansion and um, there's very little help. I believe it was 10 years after the Dominican Republic dropped their demand for cane sugar, they also stopped acknowledging the Bateyes as a population that was in Dominican Republic. So there was some, you know, 10, possibly 100,000 um, Haitian immigrants that were in these Bate communities, which were no longer acknowledged um, and considered part of the Dominican population, which is super interesting. Um, these Bate communities, there are over 500 of them scattered throughout the country. The majority of them have no access to health care. Very few of them have a source of potable water, no steady food source, the majority of them no electricity. So it's something that I consider to be a very major issue. They receive very little media attention as well because they're situated in the Dominican Republic, which I mentioned was um, more of a developed economy as opposed to Haiti. Um, so, you know, media coverage of Dominican Republic, it usually consists of the beaches and, you know, the, the coastal ring around the country. And you just see the um, you just see the development and the hotels and the whole tourist industry down there. But it's rarely covered. Um, the kind of infrastructure further into the country. Um, and what you'll see oftentimes is just a 30, 40 minute drive from the beach once you go further more into the country. Um, you'll see influxes of these communities and you'll see tens of thousands of these individuals living below many people's standard of poverty. Um, 
and some of them are only 25, 30 miles from the coast where there's skyscrapers and Ferraris and, you know, a drink is $15. And a lot of these individuals don't even have access to clean water for themselves on a day-to-day basis, which is horrible. So um, I began in 2017 focusing on a specific bate called Bate Baraguana because I had visited that on a trip I took down there. And this community was, there's no census, of course, taken, but we believe it's about 150 individuals and about 70 of those are kids. And um, so it's a relatively large pate. Some of them have 30 people, some of them have 40, 50, all the way up to like 500. This one um, was bigger than the majority though. And when I first showed up in 2017, a lot of these individuals were in a severe state of poverty. A lot of the individuals um, had gone blind just from cataracts, which is a really simple operation here in the States and usually covered by your medical insurance. But these individuals undocumented and without access to, you know, basic health care, they just are entirely blinded from cataracts. So you see that very often in the Bateas, which is insane. Um, they had very few sources of potable water. There's a river running during select times of the year behind the community. Um, But when that dries up in the summer months and into the early fall, it's very difficult for them to sustain their sources of water. Um, No steady food source. Of course, I said no, no access to medical care, no electricity. So the community was really just in a state of decay. And um, a lot of the houses, if you could call them that, situated within the community were built by hand with um, slabs of corrugated metal, big tree branches, and held together with twine. Um, so when you see something like this, you you know, it, it is easy to imagine when a hurricane comes through, these are just entirely wiped out. And I believe it was Hurricane Maria that happened in 2018 that just wiped out um, it was estimated a good 5,000 of these handmade shelters across Bateas and Dominican Republic. Um, so what I wanted to do, I didn't have my nonprofit at the time. I was just operating it as an NGO, a non-governmental organization. But what I wanted to do was um, create a crowdsource initiative to just build better housing for these individuals. What I would like to do long term is find a way to move these individuals out of the Bate communities and um, partner with Dominican lawmakers and make some kind of a change in legislation that allows these immigrants to, at some point, acquire citizenship. Um, That's a really long process. So in the meantime, I just want to make their stay in those communities more comfortable as well as safer. So what we've begun to do is um, create houses for them that are of a higher architectural standard. So Like I said, a lot of them were built with um, corrugated metal slabs and twine and tree branches. So we would demolish those and we would rebuild them with, um, you know, wood, two by four, cinder blocks, steel rebar, that kind of a thing. Um, So that these individuals can at least have a safer, more structurally sound home while we're trying to work on the bigger legality behalf of it. Um, in addition to that, with this specific Bate Bate Baragona, we also restored electricity to the community, which was super neat. They had a power line running in and out of that community that stretched 30 miles to the nearest county. Um, 
And that did provide electricity when they were harvesting sugarcane. But in the 90s, like I said, when they cut out that demand for the sugarcane, they also cut electricity. Um, and the individuals in this community occasionally would be able to band together enough money to pay the county and get electricity for a month or two months or something like that. But when I had visited, they had been out electricity for like three or four years. Um, so it was very, very, very cool to restore that for them. The next day when we came back, there were lights on, there was music playing. It was super, super cool. Um, so that is a an economic issue and just the economic despair of these individuals in the Batista and the Dominican Republic and the community development we're trying to work on down there. Um, mostly rebuilding houses, trying to develop steady sources of food. Vertical agriculture, like I mentioned earlier, is going to really come into play down there. I've worked with a couple of architects to try and like design a mock vertical farm, um, which would totally change the game. It could be like 10 feet tall and it would have multiple layers of fruits and vegetables um, that would flourish in those climates and which would grow super fast. And we could also employ um, a couple of the immigrant inhabitants of these communities to upkeep these these farms, which would be a super cool, sustainable source of fresh food for these individuals. And for a lot of these individuals, it would be the first steady food source that they've ever, ever seen. So it would be a total, total game changer. Um, and then as far as environmental, kind of the reason that I was invited to speak on this is I'm working, we're in the pre-production stages of a documentary right now, which is going to be called Plastic Planets. And it's to summarize, it's a look at trash, how we throw things away, and why we're so bad at it. So it's going to be a contrast between different waste management systems in different countries and different cities around the world. Because it's really interesting to think about the fact that regardless of whether or not you're making an effort to put that piece of plastic into the correct bin so that it can be recycled, there's always going to be a chance that it will not be recycled. And oftentimes that's out of our grasps, which is very interesting. Um, many individuals don't know that... I mean, I'm, I'm assuming most all American cities don't process their own recycling, um, at least on a major scale. And it was for many years, I'm not sure if you guys have talked about this before, that America was exporting the influx of their, was it only plastic recycling? It was uh, plastic and garbage. Plastic and garbage to China. Um, and they had a direct trade set up with them. And then China imposed a, it was like a sanitation standard, which was way too high to meet. Yeah, they just didn't want to meet that standard pretty much. Right, and we had been importing our, our trash and recycling to them for a number of years, so they kind of called that off. And when that happened, um, a lot of smaller Southeast Asian countries tried to assume the role of taking our trash and recycling so that they could manufacture it and recycle the materials and create new products from that. Um, a couple of small Southeast Asian countries stepped in, but they couldn't handle our influx of trash and recycling. Um, so they've slowly but surely dropped out as well. And we've just been facing a lot of hardships here in the States with the development of our recycling industry and um, just handling this influx of trash and recycling that we're no longer exporting to foreign countries. And what I've heard oftentimes is um, when we are able to export to foreign countries, we can only actually accept and recycle the things that there is a demand for. And I was reading in 2018 in the majority of the state of California, cardboard wasn't recycled as a or it wasn't accepted as a recyclable because wherever we were exporting in Southeast Asia at the time, there was just no demand for cardboard. It was primarily for um, plastics. So that, that's just that's just bizarre, entirely out of our grasp. Like they weren't accepting cardboard, which is 
you know, been accepted widely as, as something that can be recycled everywhere and with relative ease as well, which is super interesting. So what we want to do is um, take plastic bottles and put a GPS tracker inside of each of them, seal them watertight, and then work with international connections to get these bottles simply thrown away in local trash cans in various countries, you know, cities, economies, counties around the world. And then from there, we can follow the GPS signal and we can kind of compare and contrast different places and how they're dealing with their waste. So we're going to release a couple here in the U.S. We're going to be releasing some in Europe, Asia, Central America, South America, etc., etc. And we're going to be following these GPS signals to see when my friend throws a bottle away in Kenya, where that's going to end up, how they're processing that plastic. And we can contrast that to where we're exporting our trash right now. You know, if we throw away a bottle here in Portland, Oregon, where are we going to send that to? Will it be processed? Will it not be? Um, so we hope to really unveil a lot of the poor practices and flaws in our waste management systems internationally and kind of um, we would really like to enact change and kind of take example from some of the countries that are dealing with it better, like some spots in Europe. So we're going to be releasing probably a hundred of these bottles um, across the continents to kind of just see what's going on with these bottles, track track them and see where they're ending up. It'll be really interesting, you know, if some of them go intercontinental, they cross the ocean, because a lot of, you know, a lot of trash obviously ends up in the ocean and that's out of our grasps as well. So it'd be really interesting to compare and contrast between those. And we'd like to also try and relocate some of the bottles and or visit and follow up with some of the individuals that we sent the bottles to who have released them to just kind of conduct interviews with them and look at local waste management systems. I think that'd be very neat. Um, and by the end, I just want to have developed a, a larger narrative of how different countries are kind of dealing with the waste and with the plastic and everything else. Um, and kind of highlighting those that are doing it worst as well as those that are doing that best and try and provide example from those that are doing it best. So that is environmental, and that's the third letter in the acronym. That's kind of what we're doing right now. That actually sounds really interesting. Like, I I really want to see where all that ends up because I think I think if I, I can't remember the exact statistics of it, but I know there's only a certain amount of plastics that can be recycled within certain recycling plants, like within the country, and so everybody puts everything that has a recycle, recyclable label in the recycling bin, but not all of that gets recycled because not a lot of the recycling facilities in the U.S. can um, recycle that material, which is why they're sending to Asia, like you just mentioned. So I, I, I do, I'm actually really looking forward to whenever you are done with the documentary and you release that or publish it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm super interested too. It's, it, it's funny because... Um, we're, we're really highlighting and emphasizing on releasing these bottles in the countries that we think are not going to process them, as funny as that sounds, to fuel the narrative of the story. We're trying to make sure that these bottles are going to countries which may not deal with them at all because we can really explode we can really expose the flaws in those waste management systems you know if a bottle is released down in Mexico, you know namely and I don't know if any of Mexico has a recycling system in place. Mm, they they have a recycling system, but I don't mm. know how well it actually works out for them. Okay, so I, I've heard I've heard like namely in Mexico City. I have a friend down there. She says that um, 
they like to pose as if they they deal with the plastic as if they have a recycling system but that the entirety of that city doesn't and it's just thrown away that'd be really interesting to see whether or not it just ends up in landfills or whether or not mexico is exporting some trash as well it'd just be very interesting to drop a bottle in a location and see that it's not actually staying in that location that's going to be a very interesting way to contrast between different countries and see who's doing it worse and that'll also kind of expose which countries are the biggest contributors to um the intercontinental spread of just waste in in various forms in various places along coastlines in the middle of the ocean obviously the great pacific garbage patch is just swelling with with trash from all sorts of different areas so it'd be very interesting to see which countries are going about it the worst and which countries are kind of doing the best job of handling their influx I feel like if you got bottles in the UK, that would for sure be interesting because what I've heard is that they don't, like within the country, they don't actually have any landfills because it's so populated and Mm. so dense. And most of the trash that they were sending was actually to Malaysia. So during the investigation where they were figuring out who to send their trash back to, they said that one of the countries that was sending them the most was the UK. So things that people thought that were being recycled actually weren't they were being sent to other countries and so i feel like it would be interesting to send them to a lot of like more developed like first world countries because Mm -hmm. in the end that's those are probably the ones that are exporting it the most and you know that's the whole uk thing is actually not surprising to me at all only because like the settler states like the us canada and mexico are only here because of like you know european european countries came over and colonized it so like the u.s does it canada does it i'm sure mexico probably does it too since the uk does it and they like colonized the u.s and canada before they were the countries them doing the same thing is like not really shocking to me but i mean i do want to see what ends up happening those bottles because i know that um there's a report by the guardian uh that found that there's a million plastic bottles bought around the world like every minute um which is like it's like it's psychotic uh and i think the number is supposed to increase by like another 20 percent by 2021 so like in two years oh, it's supposed to have gone up 20 percent. like that's it's crazy <laughs> Yeah, that's insane. I think this will be particularly interesting because um, a lot of this information regarding where our plastic and, and other trash is going, the information is oftentimes not publicly disclosed and or accessible until some kind of an investigation is launched, like you mentioned. Um, because I know I know Canada as well exports their recycling to Malaysia. Um, it'd be really interesting to see where a lot of these other places are, are exporting the trash because I know they can't all be going to Malaysia. That's a very small country to to accept that influx of trash from the UK alone, you know. Yeah, but also all Canada. those Asian countries are the largest, uh, how do you say it, the largest, the, they are the largest ocean polluters. And it makes mm-hmm. sense because if all of our trash is going to them, they can't just overfill their landfill, so they have to put it somewhere. And so a lot of the world's trash is actually in that general area of water. And so um, it makes sense, but it sucks. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's like you said, no, a lot of the information isn't really accessible to people, um, which is kind of why one of the reasons why we started this podcast, but not specifically for plastic, but just like to break down climate change and all the environmental issues that come with it um 
to have that information more accessible to people. Um, but I'm trying to remember the countries because I, d- I had to write a report. It's like that 30-page report that I wrote that I was talking about earlier um, on the plastic, and I was trying to bring it up, but I couldn't find it. I know that uh, off the top of my head, it was Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia were some of the other countries that plastic was getting sent to. Mm. Yeah. yeah and the philippines the, the president yeah. of the philippines threatened uh justin trudeau if he didn't pick up his garbage that he would send it back and start a war and he even he even said you can eat it if you want to oh my god he threatened prime minister trudeau that's yeah. wild oh my god yeah. honestly though i stand i love it yeah um, it's like they've been telling them for six years like hey pick up your garbage we don't want it anymore and they refused they just kept putting it off and the thing that i've been trying to look up and i still can't find it is the international waste trade document that says exactly what you can send to other countries because i know they have one and it says something like you can only send recyclable products or second use goods or secondhand goods to other countries and so they were using that in order to Uh, as a legal basis to send garbage to other countries and they were claiming that garbage was secondhand goods but in fact it's not like they were sending them some recycling but it was not well separated at all because they were they were paying them for the amount of stuff that they were sending over and so they thought well we can make more money if we're just sending them whatever we can and we're just filling up the crates with whatever materials we have and that's how they were making a lot of money and in the end now a lot of counties are actually having to pay to get their stuff recycled which doesn't it's not economically viable and so that's why a lot of recycling programs are actually being shut down because there's no point if they're not making money Mm-hmm. Like they're just losing their profit. And it mm-hmm. it costs something like one cent to produce a plastic bag versus, what was it, like five to six cents to produce a paper bag and then nine to 11 cents to produce a biodegradable bag. And so obviously <laughs> a lot of companies are going to try to cut their costs and go with the plastic bags. And there's no economic incentive for them right now to switch to biodegradable which is to our detriment because the yeah. more garbage that we produce, the harder it is to get to clean all of it up. And even with a lot of the current programs that they're doing right now, like, um, what is his name? Uh, uh, something, oh, shoot, I forgot his name, but he created a, um, like a device to pick up plastic in the ocean and he launched it in san francisco not the the interceptor is it no he was he was 16 years old when he made when he came up with the concept it's like joan slant boyan slant something is it the ocean is it the ocean cleanup i I think that that might be what it's literally okay yeah the ocean cleanup (laughs) the the founder of that organization he came up with the concept when he was 18 according to the ones i was actually just reading it before we started oh okay i'm a big fan of them and the interceptor i think they did like their keynote like their unveiling and and San yeah. Francisco. Yeah, they did. But then like the Interceptor One was already going by the time that they they did the unveiling in Indonesia, I believe. Mm. Um, and then they were set to do two more. One of them was in Dominican Republic, which I was super excited about, and then another one of them was um, 
in a different part of Southeast Asia. But yeah, that was another thing I wanted to speak about was the fact that according to that website, at least that 90% of all the garbage pollution in our ocean is coming from about nine or 10 different rivers. Yeah. I do. I do remember that. Uh, fuck. I know that there was like, I know that there's one and it's going to come to me after the, after we finish filming this. Cause that's always how it happens. <laughs> but yes, that is, that is very, very true. I know that for a fact. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, did you? I, there's like 180 countries that um, agreed to treat plastic as hazardous waste, except the United States. We're, the, we're one of the only countries that didn't of course. agree to it because, you know, that's us. But mm-hmm. yeah, there, it took like 12 days to negotiate it. Um, so now it's, it's supposed to be treated as a hazardous waste now because it, that's basically what it is. We just don't treat it like it is. You know yeah and like like where i was going with that is that like that's a cool concept like he's cleaning up the ocean like that's great but it's not really doing as much if we're still continuing to pollute like exactly. we're still adding like let's say he's taking out like a hundred thousand pieces of garbage per minute or something we're still adding in like 400,000 pieces of plastic or garbage into the ocean in that same minute. So it's really like, it's helping, but it's not helping as much as we should ideally be aiming for. And so we need legislative backing Mm -hmm. in order to get industries that are creating the products to be responsible for the end of life cycle of it. They can't just put them out into the world and not be responsible for the consequences of it. And so exactly. we need I, some sort of incentive in that sense. I think to build off of that, I think we need to follow, like as far as in what's currently referred to as the U.S., um, I think we need to kind of follow what Germany's doing. Um, so they're basically like, I don't know if it's still now or if it's like in the works. It just has to do with like that agreement that I just uh, talked about because um, they are trying to make sure that the only plastic waste that can be sold abroad is um, the one that's already been sorted and easily recyclable. So it's nothing that like countries are currently sending to uh, some of those Asian countries that we were talking about earlier. It's, it's supposed to change that, um, which I feel like can help with plastic redu- production. I mean, reduction in plastic consumption. That's mm-hmm. what I was trying to say. Yeah. But all, all in all, it's like in... It's our responsibilities too, but it's also, it's mostly industry's responsibility, but it's also our responsibility because we're the ones that are using the products. No, and exactly. So like all they're doing is they're trying to satisfy us. And a lot of people don't like realize that. Like everybody wants to blame corporations and saying that like, you know, they're the ones producing this. They're the ones that need to change. It's like, yeah, they're to blame because, you know, they're making this stuff, but it's also because we're demanding it. So it's, and I think that a lot of people don't fully understand that uh, because all companies are trying to do is make a profit off of us. So, which is why like a lot of people are on Twitter um, have been like talking about how like the plastic straw ban isn't like enough. And like that's um, because straws are useful for disabled people, you know, Um, which is why straw alternatives um, are offered like at at my job. The company I work for got rid of plastic straws, so we we only offer paper straws um, per request because uh, obviously some disabled people need straws. Um, but it, the reason why plastic is being um, 
produce mass produces because we uh the demand is going high i'm so sorry i, I spaced out the demand is rising because of us so yes it's all economic incentive to kind of go back to what you said earlier that really makes the world turn doesn't it as horrible as that sounds um yeah and i mean it, it is the majority of contribution of you know fossil fuel secretion as well as you know <laughs> global waste is is comes from big industry but of course the big industry always follows demand i think it's very interesting to see um how basically every large auto manufacturer is now has implemented or is on the track to implement some kind of an ev line after tesla has shaken up the industry so much and they've they've created that demand for the electric vehicle at a consumer price um and you can see how the industry follows behind that you know they've all developed ev lines you know like there's like a, there's an electric mustang that's that was unveiled recently which i think is super cool and it's very oh, yeah. comparable to um some of the newer tesla models as well so i think it's very cool how industry follows but it's very hard to sway industry when it comes to convenient consumables which is is just dominated by plastic it's 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 harder to sway the mind of the consumer once you're dipping into the convenience factor which is horrible like it's, it's it's just so easy to take a plastic bag use it and throw it away it's so easy and it, it just has that feel good aspect if um your products are wrapped in plastic at the grocery store it's like this is sealed i know it's safe it hasn't been tainted touched by anything else it's it's just there there's so much there's it's just implemented at such a scale that it's a lot harder to roll back and implement change than it is with something like fossil fuels i think it's it's i think it would be a lot easier to phase out fossil fuels entirely as insane as that sounds than it would be to phase out the use of plastic in similar materials just because of the way it's implemented into our society it's so much it's it's rooted in such a different way than other consumables are well, part of the reason that plastics are so cheap is because of the oil industry, because they're kind of a byproduct of it. Yeah. And so I saw a, it was, um, it was like a metaphor, I think it was, that's how you would say it. Um, so let's say that you're cutting down a forest for animal agriculture, and your end goal is animal agriculture. So in the process of cutting down all of those trees, you're going to create a larger market for timber mm -hmm. and wood and so that's kind of a byproduct of cutting down the rainforest for animal agriculture so in a sense plastic is the byproduct of the oil and coal industry because it's like while you're producing all of this all of these fossil fuels you're also creating a market for plastic and so if we kind of cut down our fossil fuel intake then by by default, uh, by default, we would um, definitely, definitely. I just I think it would be easier to phase out gasolines than it would be to phase out the export of virgin oil uses, you know, and petroleum byproduct that's used to produce plastic. I think it's a lot easier to phase out. What am I trying to say? Like the implementation of oil in things in which there is a clear, concise, and you know cool from the consumer's perspective alternative like an ev car versus you know um those same alternatives in place of convenience in the consumer's day-to-day -day life um 
like replacing plastic bags, replacing plastic straws, you know, minimizing the plastic packaging products in grocery stores. But if there was incentive to create those from biodegradable products in the process of us trying to eliminate the single useness, we could at least be creating them with biodegradable. No, definitely. That's that's the whole economic incentive. I'm I'm definitely with you on that. I think that there the just the demand isn't there in the same way because there's there's so much appeal going back to EVs again. I know I'm milking it, but there's so much appeal around that. Whereas and and, and that goes for largely for everybody with you know electric vehicles nowadays and Tesla. And it just has this sense of, um, you know, it has that cool factor to it as opposed to um, decomposable or multi-use alternatives to plastic bags, plastic straws and this and that. You know, people that are in the right mind can see the benefit in that and see that it's super cool. But it's especially hard to appeal to in America, you know, if, if we exclusify that, you know, to let's say like the, the radical rights, you know, they see it as um, just a leftist radical initiative. They, they see this and that and they, they always try and drag politics into it. And it's a lot harder to create that large scale appeal with something that it's like, well, it's not necessary for me to do. Whereas with something like a Tesla, a lot of people are buying them just because of the functionality and the feature and they think it's cool. And some some people could give couldn't give less of a damn whether or not it's a but it has that cool factor that just draws in consumer consumers whereas um, things where their specific new purpose is to replace you know a single use a single use product it, it takes that step up and initiative from the consumer they have to purchase it with that intention like I am buying this straw not necessarily because it is cooler or functions more than a regular straw but because I have that intention in place that I don't want to use a regular straw so I think it would be really beneficial to see just more brainstorming and more aggressive marketing around you know biodegradable and or multi-use alternative products to create that cool factor and that culture around them because it's it's there but it's more so niche than it is in something like an ev which has a broader range of appeal it's harder to diversify the consumer interest around those products where you purchase them specifically because you're wanting to make that positive impact yeah no i i totally i i understood everything i was like processing everything that i just said because that was a lot of information yeah um no but that that's 100 percent true i think um it kind of also ties in with like bioplastics which is another alternative mm-hmm. that um, people have been investigating and stuff um i know that there was can't remember the, the the person's name but they were looking at corn as a possible um like be, using corn uh, as a basis for bioplastics, but it was kind of being debated because um, they were trying to figure out like how re- uh, natural resources should be allocated when like our populations are rising and we're going to become more food insecure. But one thing within those type of studies that people don't like to um, discuss is like animal agriculture and how a lot of arable land and a lot of food that could be used for bioplastics and to feed humans is used to feed like mass amount of like cattle and like just different types of livestock. Um, but no, it's nobody wants to talk about that, which is another reason why I feel like bioplastics isn't um, receiving as much attention as it should. But it's like you said, it doesn't really have like the cool factor for people. It's more just like something, it's like a political thing like you were talking about. But the other problem with bioplastics is also that they're not recyclable. Hmm. Like yeah, well, sure, some of them can... are um, 
they're uh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off continue <laughs> No, Sorry. I was gonna say just continue. I completely like... okay. <laughs> um, they're like uh, if you, if bioplastics are made correctly, they're biodegradable. So they they actually break down like naturally. It's not they don't take like millions and millions of years to break down like plastic does. Um, some do, but some don't. So it's kind of like a it just depends like, on what like they're made out of. Washing, pretty much. Yeah, like the advertisement advertising for them because a lot of them like they have enough chemicals in them to not break not be able to easily break down like ideally yeah. it is a good idea because at least it's coming from a renewable source but it's not recyclable no no bioplastic as far as my knowledge goes contains dimethyl sulfide though correct me if i'm wrong which is good because that's the chemical emanated by plastics that's like i mentioned in the video attracts marine life to eat it in whatever capacity whether whether or not it's split up and it's now a bioplastic or it's full-size pieces of plastic if it doesn't contain dimethyl sulfide i mean definitely better than traditional plastic and i don't think any bioplastic contains dimethyl sulfide so i don't think that's necessary to i don't believe it does either yeah so that's good yeah. pros and cons <laughs> yeah i mean there, there's a lot for everything um because there, there's a what is it called um the biodegradable products institute um which is a they're a non-profit that they formed um to advocate for biodegradable like waste infrastructure and products and everything um and so like uh basically with bioplastics it uh based on like i'm trying to figure out the best way to explain this so they see bioplastics um and like industrial composting for bioplastics as an economic potential which would give incentives for governments and for cities and for different types of uh, corporations to use um because then they could charge like they could charge cities for waste management to um process these um biodegradable bioplastics to compost them you know what i mean if i'm explaining that correctly sometimes i'm really bad at explaining things (laughs) okay so yeah so i mean i think that like i do think about like obviously it would be preferable to not have any types of plastics whatsoever um but i do think switching to like bioplastics would be a step in the right direction it's kind of similar to like renewable energies and like lithium batteries so like lithium batteries aren't good for the environment because of the way that the lithium is obtained and a lot of a lot of lithium sources actually violate the united nations declaration of indigenous people's rights um because of uh they take land from indigenous people there's a whole lot of stuff but that's another topic um but now they're developing other technology that doesn't use lithium so it's like those batteries were a step in the right direction and then now it's going even further to where we'll kind of hopefully we'll stray away from lithium batteries you know so i do think like bioplastics could be a step in the right direction as far as like what we need right now you know yeah what are, what are your guys' thoughts i think that in general we should just try to not use plastic as much as possible like maybe go more towards biodegradable but like bioplastics are better than what we have right now like that's Mm. the that's the only step up i could give it ideally if we could invest in more biodegradable things 
and just try to go away from single-use items, that would be ideal. But the way that everybody's mindset works, it's not, it's going to be really hard to get people to stop using single-use plastics to begin with. Yeah, because yeah. of the convenience factor. Yeah. Right. And bioplastics, it's it's still a step, like you said, in the right direction. They're, they're baby steps, right? Which are, are steps regardless, but it's like, how much time do we have is this effective to enact, you know, to slowly create this train in the right direction? How much time do we have for that? Yeah, that's that's a valid point. I never, I mean, I guess I considered it, I'm lying. No, I do think about that a lot. I just, I think I'm one of those, I, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. You know? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, no, but I think, I think what I was trying to say is that I, I think those are things that I do think about. Um, I tend to just like I see like the mm, what is the word uh I'm an oh I'm an optimist that's what it is mm-hmm. so I'm like I see the thing and I'm like oh this is a really good thing and then I try to like be like okay this could actually work and I always forget to look at the bigger picture oh well that's me that's what I'm you know? here for <laughs> yeah see, see that's you yeah like sometimes I look at the bigger picture on on I look I tend to look at the bigger picture in a lot of things but once I've I I see a solution or like I find a solution like based on what I'm researching and everything I tend to focus on that one little thing and I'm I can't because like everything it's like systems like everything is a system so yeah it's hard you, you see some kind of a proposed solution you're like oh dude hell yeah and you're like super down for it, you know like planting 20 million yeah. trees but if those exactly. 20 million trees were a monoculture then it would do more harm than good you know what I mean exactly so yeah it, it's it's all about how it's approached and the long-term effects on whatever that whatever it's it's regarding so we're gonna end that here so do you have any concluding messages before we let you go um not necessarily i mean thank you guys for having me on i would love to come back and touch base once the documentary is like further in its steps of development just to kind of follow up on what kind of information we found that could be that could be a cool part too in the future yeah no we'd love to have you i definitely want to hear more about the progression of the documentary yeah yeah thank you guys it's been great I sleep all day cause I'm up all night Wondering why my eyes are never white and I just um, So yeah, that is Tate. Um, he is doing a lot of work that I'm super excited to watch him do and be a part of because I am helping with out with that documentary as well. Um, but... Yeah, well, what were you? What? Uh, sorry, I can't speak. <laughs> what were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I think that's amazing. Like all the work that he was doing and everything that um his non it's, his nonprofit is doing and like his goals, uh, because like obviously like everything he taught everything he touched on and that his uh nonprofit is touching on is literally like everything I'm passionate about and like what I'm going to school for and the things that I want to do. So I'm I'm very excited to see uh everything that he achieves and i really i'm really excited to see that documentary like i can't wait for you all to finish it because i'm i'm very excited to watch it and i'm sure our listeners will be excited to watch it as well (laughs) yes we definitely do plan on having him back when a little bit more of the process of the documentary has been happening so that we can update you on the water bottles like the tracking of them like where we're going and all of that so that's something to look forward to in the future (laughs) and then uh thank you all again for listening um we really appreciate you all be sure to subscribe to our podcast 
And uh, the music on this podcast is actually by a really good friend of mine, um, Bella. So if you get a chance, look her up on um, Spotify. It's uh, Bella Renee. And today's the song that's on our podcast is called Eye Drops. Yes, and I freaking love it. Like, even when I'm editing this podcast, I just, like, sometimes I have to listen to the whole thing a couple I know. times. I know. I love it. Oh, she posted yes. an update on um, her album. It's like a preview of her song on Twitter. You have to listen to it. It's so good. <laughs> oh, yes, I will leave her information down below so that you guys can check her out if you want on the YouTube version of this. And, well, her name will be on the um, Spotify version as well. And then I will also leave Tate's information in case you want to learn more about C Difference and what he's doing and all of that stuff. Um, but yes. yeah. So be sure to check them out. And again, subscribe, follow. Thank y'all. Yes. Um, don't forget to hug some yes, trees go out hug there. Some. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Um, but thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.